You are listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. Good morning, Gateway. How are we? Good. Am I? There we go. Okay, good. Just making sure. Well, it's wonderful. Wonderful to be with you. Uh, I cherish every opportunity that I have to be here at this great church. This is a home away from home for me, and I'm always intending, every time I come, I always intend to bring my family. And then they, we always plan to, ha- to have this happen, and it, it doesn't happen, because every time I come, somebody in my family gets sick. And so we were planning to come. My son got a fever on Thursday. I don't know what it is about you people. Right? But something always, there's an illness that always befalls my family. One day I'm going to come and they're going to be with me. Um, perhaps it says more about me than you that we're always getting sick. But uh, I pray that you're well. It's hard to believe this is the first Sunday of May. We're already in May of 2023, which is difficult to believe. We celebrated commencement, the graduation ceremonies at Lee University yesterday. So I'm in summer vacation, which means I'm free to preach the Word of God <laughs> in a way that is liberating and uh, filled with joy and great expectation. But it's always wonderful to be here. I'm very grateful to Pastor Charlie for this invitation, especially. Um, will you join me also in expressing appreciation to the worship team for doing such a great job this morning and leading us in worship and all that they do week in and week out. Um, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings 4. 2 Kings comes right after, get this, 1 Kings. And then it comes right before First Chronicles. Um, but Second Kings 4 is where we are. As I begin to reflect upon what God might have for us today, um, I thought about where we are in the Christian calendar. We're in Easter tide. The season of Easter starts, of course, on Easter Sunday, and then we'll continue seven weeks after Easter until we reach Pentecost Sunday, which is May the 28th this year. And so we're in a moment of reflecting upon and celebrating all that God has done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also, next week is, of course, Mother's Day, to put that on the radars of all the males in the room. Um, But uh, Mother's Day is next week, and so I thought it might be appropriate to read a resurrection story together. And no, not from the New Testament. So boring, predictable. Let's go to the Old Testament and read a resurrection story there. Those gritty, odd, weird narratives of the Old Testament. And this story in particular is about a woman, a mother, and the room that she makes for a prophet. So this is a sermon ultimately about making room. And of course, we know that there are a few things more revealing about our identities than our rooms. That as long as we have a relationship that's kind of distant from somebody else, professional relationship, if you will, an acquaintanceship, um, then we can do a lot to control the impression of that relationship. And I can posture myself as articulate or funny or pious or smart, whatever the case might be. And you might believe that and you can do the same with me. But of course, the second that that relationship where we cross the threshold of one another's houses, the threshold of one another's doors, that relationship enters a whole new level, doesn't it? Now, I'm no prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet, but uh, I would venture to say, 
that your house is most clean when you know that company is headed to the house, right? Even if you keep it really clean, there's a next level of clean when people are getting ready to come to the house. When you know that they're on their way or will be there soon, you take all those dirty clothes and you shove them into a closet or to some room. You hide all the embarrassing paraphernalia or the stuff that makes you look bad. You clean the toilets until they turn blue, which is the surest sign in my house that somebody's coming to our house. All of a sudden, the toilet water is blue. And I ask... Who's coming over, right? Uh, So the toilet water turns blue. You light a candle or do something to cover that smelly ape scent of a human that you are, right? You pray to God when they show up in your house that they don't go to that room or open that closet door or go around that side of the house or go in the basement. And if they do, you just apologize the entire time just that it looks the way that it does. Our house cannot look like anyone lives in it. Can I get an amen, right? It just needs to look almost... Perfect. Yeah, so we do our best to control our impressions. And even after they leave, we wonder, was it enough? What did they think of me? Or perhaps when you're seeing somebody, you begin to wonder if you don't know them well, what does their room, their house look like? You're in a worship service. You're watching people lead worship or preach. And you think to yourself, you're supposed to be worshiping God. And you think to yourself, what does their house look like? We should do MTV Cribs Gateway Edition, shouldn't we? Wouldn't that be nice? Bring back Cribs. Yeah, so our rooms, revealing of our identities, they humanize us. They humiliate us. When people walk into our houses, we can't deny our interests, our styles, our family members. We're in pictures with them. No, I indeed am related to that human being. What was your childhood room like? Mine had pictures of Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles and Star Wars and all that mess. My son is now into Star Wars, which is great. I'm handing on the tradition faithfully from one generation to another. Um, I had snacks hidden in drawers in my room in case mom's cooking wasn't particularly good that evening. I had baseball participation trophies, because I'm a millennial. And, uh, (laughs) you know, and I wasn't any good. And so that's all you get is the little participation trophy. And eventually, it became an Xbox and musical instruments. And now I have no authority over my room whatsoever. My wife of 14 years controls all aspects of our room. I have no jurisdiction in my own home. But our homes, our rooms, they're, they're havens, too. They're safe places. I would venture to say that In your home, you dance and sing to things that you don't dance and sing to in public because it's safe. And also our rooms are places of great sadness and sorrow, even places of punishment. Go to your room, we tell our kids. That our rooms, even as kids, right? Mom and dad might own the house, but my room, it's like a foreign embassy in a hostile territory. It's got its own sovereignty to it, doesn't it? This is my place. Yeah, so what would we learn about you if we were to take a field trip to your room? Well, this story is about a mother, as I said, it's about very specific room. And we're going to look at this story in three moments, but I want to read all of it together first. And as we read the Word of God, I'm going to read quite a bit of text from 2 Kings 4 verse 8 all the way to the end. But we're in church. It's okay to read a lot of the Bible, right? All right. So can we please stand as you are able for the reading of the Word of God? 2 Kings 4, starting in verse 8. This is what the Word of God says. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and he lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite. So he called her. She stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you've gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? 
Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her? Elisha asked. Gehazi said, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew. One day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers, and he said to his father, My head, my head! His father told his servant, Carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant, Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything's all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me and, and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said. Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your cloak into your belt. Take my staff in your hand and run. Don't greet anyone you meet. And if anyone greets you, don't answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. And the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room and then got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Can you say amen to the reading of God's word? You can be seated. God, we ask that your blessing would be added to the word today. Our ears are open to hear you. Our eyes are looking for you. Prepare the soil of our hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it was the early 1990s. There was a youth group in Holland, Michigan, that had been doing a sermon series about Jesus and his moral example, and they wanted to remember that example. A coined phrase from Christian history and Christian literature of recent times had kind of stuck in the mind of a youth leader. They wanted to emblazon it in the mind of the youth as well. And so they distilled that lesson into a phrase. And that phrase distilled once more into a, a group of letters. And those letters were going to eventually decorate all kind of paraphernalia. But up front, of course, it was only going to be bracelets. It was four letters, in fact, bracelets. And they were placed on the wrist of all the students. And they were made in every color known to humankind. And eventually, it left this little church and got in the hands of some Christian influencers. In the 1990s and early 2000s, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing them in church world. I would venture to say that there are some of them perhaps in the room right now. What were those four letters? 
WWJD. That's right. What did it stand for? What would Jesus do? Now, that's a good question to ask. Jesus is an example of holiness and godliness. And in every moment of our lives, being reminded by a green or whatever color bracelet to embody and to live into that example. Well, this morning, Jesus isn't necessarily in this story because this predates Jesus, not as God, of course, but as the human being that he will be as Mary's son. But nevertheless, we want to ask that question, not what would Jesus do, but ask it in a different way. Because for us, the moral exemplar in this story, not Jesus, but instead, this unnamed woman, known only to us as the Shunammite woman. So today, we're not asking WWJD. Instead, we're asking WWTSW. D, which does not roll off the tongue in the least, but what would the Shunammite woman do? What is she teaching us? And we're going to see it in three very simple lessons, all pertaining to this room. The first lesson that she teaches us is making room, making room, especially for God. Elisha is the successor to Elijah. Elijah is a kind of renegade, cowboy, prophetic figure from the Transjordan. He has no lineage. He comes out of nowhere. And he is the thorn in the side of all the Israelite kings who are corrupt and idolatrous and sinful. Elijah is bearing the word of God to, of course, defend the poor and the uh, broken and the oppressed and also to condemn the wicked. Elijah will do all kinds of miracles in his ministry, but eventually it's time for Elijah to go. He, at God's command, has tapped a successor. His name is Elisha. It's important that your mentee's name rhymes with yours. So Elisha is his successor. Elisha, in fact, pursues him to the moment wherein Elijah is taken up from this earth in a chariot of heaven. Now Elisha is left alone, but of course he's given a double portion of his teacher's anointing. He will conduct, or perform rather, twice as many miracles as his teacher and mentor, Elijah. This is one of those miracles. Elisha happens occasionally to step into Shunem. Shunem is in the land of Israel. It's just about 15 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's a small village there. And every time that he goes, there's a woman there, a well-to-do woman, a successful woman, a wealthy woman, who's very intrigued by this holy prophetic man. And so when she sees him enter town, of course, she knows there's no Holiday Inn Express. And so he's at the mercy of whoever happens to be there. And so she decides, you know what, I'm going to have him into my home. And the word is, that's in the Hebrew that's described there is uh, that she takes hold of him or she urges him. She overpowers him. He doesn't have a choice. Elisha, you're staying in my house. Come get something to eat. Prophets have to eat too. And so he sits at the table and they converse and she is overwhelmed by the knowledge and the wisdom and the truth and the grace of this man. So overwhelmed that after a few visits, she wants to make those visits more permanent. And so she goes to her husband, who we'll learn later is what we might call an idiot. And so she goes to her, as most husbands are, aren't we? Uh, I got an amen in the last service when I said that, from a man. Which epitomizes the male brain, doesn't it? We're all idiots. Yes, we are all idiots. There's no hope for us. Right, so she says to her husband, you know what, we should prepare a room for this holy man. And uh, we're told what she does to prepare it. This is no slapdash kind of last minute affair. This is no, we happen to have a spare bed, but there's some extra junk in the room. You can move it around. You'll figure it out. Instead, she builds a room onto her house for this man. And it's very intentional in the arrangements. Did you notice what the text says? She puts a table, a chair, a lampstand, and a bed 
in that room. Those four furniture items, now that's very key terminology in the Old Testament world because those four things are all found in the tabernacle and in the temple, which means she's not just preparing a hotel room, she's preparing a holy space, a space appropriate for a holy man. She's not doing it to get anything out of this holy man, she's just making room. Well, of course, Elisha is overwhelmed by her hospitality. He wants to do something to repay her. And so he asks his servant Gehazi, another person we'll learn here in just a minute, is also an idiot. She tells Gehazi, or he says to Gehazi, go get the woman and ask if there's anything I can do for her. I've got pull with kings and commanders, people in authority. I can get things done for her. You know what her response is? I live among my own people, which is a way of saying I have everything I need. I don't need anything. This is solely just for you. But Gehazi's been overhearing conversations at the table. And he says, listen, um, she doesn't have a son and her husband's old, whatever that means. But they haven't had a child to this point in their marriage and in their life. So Elisha calls her up into his room and he says to her, as she stands in the doorway, he says to her, this time next year you'll hold a son. What's her response? Filled with faith, trust, amen to your word? No. No, my master, please, please don't deceive me. Yeah, please don't deceive me. And the very next thing we learn in the text she conceives, and within a year, she holds this son she never thought that she could have. Making room for God is a dangerous task. If you give God an inch, he'll take a mile. And what begins is this kind of openness, curiosity, welcoming of God and God's presence and all the word of God into our world ultimately leads to a very inconvenient experience, the inconvenient experience of hope. You see, we think that despair is the greatest enemy, but in fact, despair is quite predictable. It doesn't take a prophet to look on the horizon and to know that disappointment eventually is on its way. It doesn't take a genius to look at the evening news and look around at our world and expect bad news. Despair, dread, skepticism, negativity. This is our default mode of being. This is what it means to be human. And we choose these postures because they keep us in control. They keep us from having that most painful of human experiences, which isn't just suffering, that happens to all of us. But the most painful of human experiences is to get your hopes up and then be disappointed in the embarrassment of that disappointment that comes with it. Sometimes hope just isn't worth it, it seems. Uh huh. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that God's with me. I have plaques from Hobby Lobby in my house that say, God will never leave me nor forsake me, right? And they're all pretty and they're decorated. They're in every room of the house. I've got all that. I believe that. But all of that seems so over there, doesn't it? It all seems so far away. It all seems so by and by or for everybody else, perhaps not for me. The Shunammite woman, she wasn't a fool, she had come to terms with her infertility, her inability to conceive a long time ago, and she had built a wonderful life despite it. We can trust that she did her due diligence. She went to doctors and nurses. She tried prayer and fasting. She tried all-natural diets and fertility treatments, and nothing happened. Can you imagine the terrible theological explanations she got from her neighbors and friends as she would go and worship God? Things like, well, maybe there's just some unconfessed sin in your life. Or maybe God's going to teach you a lesson eventually. Or maybe, have you tried this Bible reading plan? Or if you read this verse seven times aloud and you speak it, God has to act. Or have you tried this essential oil? It's the lavender that does it every single time. It worked for me. 
it'll work for you. And she nodded along. She said, thank you so much. She wasn't one to argue. She wasn't one to seek attention for her disappointment. She wasn't one to dramatize it. She just cried her tears quietly. And then eventually realized this wasn't for her. She took it right on the chin and kept moving anyway. There's something noble about that. She put one foot in front of the other and she kept moving. She closed the door on that room of her life. You and I are very similar, aren't we? There are things that we've sought God for, that we've prayed for, that we've cried over, that eventually we just come to terms with. That burden that was placed on our shoulders we didn't know that we could carry. The sickness, the mental illness, the wayward child, the situation that's too difficult for us to carry. Eventually, we found strength in our legs and we just kept moving. We told ourselves we need the exercise anyway. There were mountains in our lives. We used to yell at in the name of Jesus, And we would say, be thou moved. And we would wait for the mountain to uproot itself and cast itself in the heart of the sea. And all we heard was the echo of our own voice over and over again. So what did we do? We just put on our backpack and we decided, I'll climb the mountain or I'll walk around it or I'll tunnel underneath it. Or perhaps there's sinful habits. We used to pray for God to take them away, but now we just manage them. I was on a worship service just a couple weeks ago. It was a kind of Q&A thing. It was a teaching experience. And a man came forward on a microphone and he said, I just have one question. He said, I want to know, why is it that every time I cry out to God for him to take away my temper, he won't do it? I'm angry all the time and he won't take it away. I'm trying to be faithful and it's just not working. So we cry the tears in the altar and nothing changes and so we come to terms with it. And hear me again, there's something noble about accepting what won't change and moving forward. And so what do we do now? We settle for smaller hopes, lowercase h hopes, hopes like an afternoon nap. Come on, somebody, right? That's what Sundays are for, an afternoon nap. You get up, you get up out of the bed and you say, just a few more hours and I'll be right back here and life will be okay again. We hope for summer vacations. We hope for the Braves to win in my life, right? Or we hope for an Amazon package that's on its way to our house. Are there a few things more exciting? Yes, there's a few things more exciting than that. Okay, so these small hopes that we carry with us. And then out of nowhere, unexpectedly, unassumingly, the word of God stops by. No fanfare, no fireworks. It just strolls into town. And we, like the Shunammite woman, are curious. We make room for it, to listen for it, not to expect anything from it. And it's from that space, from the room that we make for God, that God makes room within us. Be careful, dear friends. Be careful of the room that you make for God. Be careful of the time you spend listening to his voice. Be careful of the strangers that you welcome in his name. Be careful of the money that you give to his causes. Be careful for the prayer closets that you inhabit, the altars that you build, the Bible studies that you frequent. Be careful of services just like this one. God's known for getting our hopes up. God's known even for, for uh, fulfilling them. In fact, God likes to fill the rooms that we build for God. Abram and Sarah welcome three strangers, make room for them into their house. And what happens? The strangers are crazy enough to tell them, hey, Sarah, though she's 90 years old, she's going to have a kid within a year. What does Sarah do? She laughs. Wouldn't you, right? That romantic flame, that hot pink flame ain't burning quite like it used to, God. But nevertheless, within a year, she's holding the promised child. Israel 
builds a room in the wilderness for God, a tabernacle. God's glory fills that place. The disciples go up into a room to prepare a place to celebrate the Passover with Jesus, and it's in that room that Jesus establishes a new covenant in his body and blood. Those same apostles and many others go into an upper room. They wait there a little while, and rumor has it that there was wind and fire and tongue-talking, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Joseph of Arimathea makes room for a dead and failed Messiah. And I think we know what happens in that tomb three days later. So God's inviting us to make room. I'm not asking you if you're a Christian. I'm not asking you if you're a follower of Jesus. I'm asking you, have you made room for God? Be careful, God's known for filling those spaces. If the story ended there, we would say, well, thanks be to God, that's a great story. But it doesn't, because all of a sudden, the child grows up. She's enjoying this promise she didn't know that she could have. The child is out in the fields with his father. He says, my head, my head. He collapses in a heat stroke. The father says to his servant, go take him to his mother. You know, the love of a father. And so (laughs) I got work to do. Um, So the son is brought to his mother. She holds him in her lap until the moment, of course, that he dies right at noon. This is the second moment of the story. She teaches us to make room, and now she's teaching us to clear room, clearing room, making a path for God to act. Here's why I love this story. We're so used to miracle stories in the Bible, where there's, of course, uh, problems presented, for example, to Jesus. Jesus solves the problem. And then there's a moral lesson at the end of the story. Uh, Go and sin no more. This was for the glory of God to be revealed, etc., etc. You know what we don't get in this story? You don't get a moral lesson. You're never told the one thing we want to know. Why does this child die? The story, not even at the end, comes back to it. There's never a moment where it says, well, it was because of the sins of the father, or it's because the sins of the child, or it's because God wanted to reveal the power of God and the prophet. You never get an explanation. And in this way, this is why I love the Bible. The Bible sympathizes with us in our own questions, doesn't it? Have you ever had a problem, a suffering in your life, and you just want to know why? Why? And there's not always an answer for it. I'm not even convinced that if we were to be given the answer, that the answer would help much anyway. Have you heard the story of Job? Job was blameless and upright, fearing God, turning from evil. So these two pairs also live long and prosper. But um, (laughs) these two pairs, he's the only person in all of scripture who gets these four descriptors. And not only that, he's OCD pious. He offers sacrifices every day just in case one of his children has cursed God in their hearts. This is a good holiness Pentecostal man right here. Did anybody grow up saying the sinner's prayer every Sunday, Wednesday, every night, because you never knew when the fire insurance was going to run out, right? Okay, so that was my upbringing. I still have guilt that I'm working through. But nevertheless, an OCD spiritual man. All of a sudden, the accuser walks into the heavens, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, I love Job. What does the accuser say? He's only serving you because you're paying him to serve you, essentially, right? You got all kind of blessings that you give him. But if you take away those blessings, he won't 
serve you anymore. So God allows those things to be taken away and in a single day he loses all his possessions and all ten of his children. Eventually the flesh, uh, the, the health in his own body, the only thing he's left with is his wife. What does that say about their marriage? I don't know, right? So all he's left with is his wife and imagine, Job just wants to know why. He wants justice. This isn't fair. Imagine at the end of the story if instead of getting the great whirlwind from God, God says to Job, all right, you want to know why? Here's why. I made a bet with the devil, and I ended up being right. <laughs> right? That, that doesn't work. Instead, you get, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Which is a way of saying that perhaps it's not about finding answers for our suffering. It's instead, as she'll teach us, finding solutions for it. But sometimes suffering's only explanation is its eradication. It's an anomaly. It's an interruption. It's just not of God anyway. And when the pain hits, the Shunammite woman shows us what we're to do. We're to make room for God. She takes initiative. What's the first thing she does? She takes the, child, the, the body of her dead child and puts it in that same room she had built for the prophet and closes the door. Now, what's that about? Well, here's the beauty of Hebrew stories, Old Testament stories. They rarely give you insights into what the character's feeling or thinking. You only know what they do and say. So you have to kind of read into their emotions, read into their actions. And in this story, perhaps we imagine this is an act of surrender, an act of desperation, an act of worship. But it could also be, I think, an act of protest, which is a way of saying, God, I never asked for this child. And now that you've taken him away, he's your problem. You're the only one that can fix it. I never asked for this dream. Now that you've taken him away, it's yours. And now I leave room for you to do what you do, and I'm going to take initiative. She closes the door. She walks out. She goes to her husband. She says, get me a servant and a donkey. I'm going to Mount Carmel to see the man of God. What does her husband say? Remember, he's an idiot. So he says, it's not the new moon or the Sabbath, because those are holy days, special days for visiting prophets, which is the equivalent of my child having a medical emergency on Saturday afternoon, and my wife's like, quick, call an ambulance, and I say, I'm sorry, babe, the doctor's not open until Monday, we'll wait until then, right, which is the ultimate dad move, so he says, that's not the new moon, it's not the Sabbath, you know what she says back? Shalom, which is a way of saying either, peace out, right, <laughs> I'm going to leave, or it's also a way of saying, it's fine, which is also a way of saying, you're an idiot, and I'm not going to talk to you about this. I'm going to take initiative. You sit here and watch the ball game. I'm going to actually help our son, right? So she gets on this donkey with this servant, and she travels 18 miles to Mount Carmel. That's six hours riding on the back of a donkey. One way to go see this man of God. Urgent. She doesn't want to talk to anybody. And of course, the man of God sitting on the mountain sees her from a distance and he sends his servant Gehazi to go ask how she is. How are you? How's your husband? How's your child? When he asks her, what does she say back? Shalom. <laughs> it's fine. This is the patron saint of saying it's fine when your life's falling apart. Yeah, you ever do that? Your life is totally in shambles and you're at Target or you're at the grocery store and somebody says, How are you today? And what do you say? I'm fine. Because the last thing I want to do is tell you about my problems, right? What are you going to do to help me? This is also a way of saying, I'm not settling for counterfeit. I'm not settling for second best. I want to get to the man of God. You guys, you're a nice guy, but you can't help me. It's like calling customer service and you know they're going to tell you, just unplug it and plug it back in. You're like, I've done that nine times. 
I need to talk to your supervisor. Let's get beyond. I really appreciate your ministry. But let's get beyond you, you know? Okay, so she tells, she tells Gehazi, it's fine. Is it fine? And it's not fine, but it's fine. It's going to be okay. So she gets to Elisha. She immediately falls face down, takes hold of his feet and weeps. Now, the word used to describe taking hold of his feet is the same word used to describe her urging him to come eat in her home. So she once pressed him to bring him into her home, and now she presses him to help her in her time of need. And as she's weeping, Gehazi is uncomfortable. She's touching the man of God. This is not allowed. So what does Gehazi do? He tries to separate the two of them. That's what we church people often try to do. Pain makes us uncomfortable, and so we want to compartmentalize it and put it over there rather than to enter into it, as God calls us to do. And Elisha says, shut up, you idiot, right? She's obviously upset, but Elisha says, God hasn't told me why either. God's holding the reasons close to the vest. And so um, she says, he says, what's going on? And she says in response, didn't I tell you not to get my hopes up? Didn't I tell you not to get my hopes up. The word is shalah in Hebrew. It means to put someone at ease. I didn't want flattery from you, which is a way of saying, how could you have promised me this and then taken it away? What does Elisha say? Gehazi, go, take my staff and put it on the boy's face. That should wake him up. I guess that's a common method in the ancient world. And that should be just fine, except in this case, it isn't, and the woman knows it. What does she say in response to Elisha sending his servant? She says, I swear to God, I'm not leaving you. I swear to God, I'm not leaving you, which is a way of saying to the prophet, I promise you, I'm not letting you go until you walk into the broken dreams of my life and you bring them back to life. I'm not letting you go until you bless me. I'm not settling for counterfeit. I'm not settling for something diluted. I'm not settling for something second best. I'm waiting on you. You're coming with me, big boy. We're going back to that room I made for you, and you're going to bring my dreams back to life. Seems faithless. It seems rebellious. It seems mean. But God likes wrestling partners. We learn that from the Old Testament. God likes it when we take hold of God and dig our nails into his skin and say, I'm not leaving until you Bless me. God likes to be bested by his children. Why? Well, because when we take hold of God so tightly, we look like God who takes hold of us so tightly. We finally reflect the image of God back to God when we cling tightly to him as tightly as he clings to us. And then there's this curious phrase after it's over. She says, I swear to God, I'm not leaving. I swear on your life too, she says. So she swears on everything. She's not going anywhere. And then we're told that he follows her to the room. Isn't that interesting? That we all know we're supposed to follow Jesus. We picked up our cross a long time ago and we're walking after him. But sometimes it's not that Jesus is asking us to follow him. Sometimes Jesus is waiting on us to lead him. That's how kind and open and vulnerable he is. Sometimes it's not us waiting on God. Sometimes God's waiting on us. If the woman doesn't do anything, she doesn't get her Son back. God's patiently waiting. God says, are you going to take me by the hand and not let me go? I'd be willing to follow you if you will. So the woman shows us clearing room, making open paths for God to act, holding to God tightly 
until he enters the broken places of our lives. Making room, clearing room. You know, Jesus tells a story that's very similar about this in the Gospels. There was a widow who was suffering injustice, and there was a judge who didn't like God and didn't like people, we're told, on two separate occasions, but she went every day demanding justice. And eventually the judge says, I don't like God and I don't like people, but this woman is driving me crazy. And Jesus says, if that's the case with an unjust judge, then what about the judge of all the universe who loves you beyond words? But he says this, but when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And what does faith look like? I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Making room, clearing room, and then finally, leaving room, leaving room. Okay, so Gehazi runs with the prophet's staff, goes to the room that she's prepared for the prophet, the man of God, places the staff on the boy's face, and what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. There's no response. There's no sound. This is the same phrase used in 1 Kings when the Mount Carmel episode happens and they're crying out to Baal to get him to answer. When they're crying out to Baal, Baal gives no response and no sound. So this child is as dead as the false god Baal. There's no hope. So Gehazi comes back and tells Elisha, hey, the trick didn't work. And Elisha knows now it's on him because he's following this woman to her home. But once they get there, he enters the room alone. She's not allowed to enter that space. She must wait in the waiting room as she leaves room for God to do what only God can do. So what does the man of God do? He walks into the room and then he lays upon the body of the child, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. What in the world is going on here? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I know it's not a model for children's ministry. I'll tell you that. So it's, it's weird, right? This story, sorry, but this story scandalizes us, doesn't it? We read this, we're going, what is going on? Okay. I think it's the fact that it scandalizes us says more about us than it says about the text. Because I think we're so broken and we're so abused and we're so, I don't want to use this word flippantly, but twisted seeing all that touch has done to harm human bodies, that we can't imagine a loving touch like that of Elisha. This is not an abusive touch. This is not a sexual touch. This is not some kind of weird or uncomfortable touch. This is a touch that shows us that God is not afraid of the unclean and dead places of who we are. A touch that shows us that God is intimately acquainted with it and makes his suffering our suffering and gives us his life by bringing us as close to himself as he possibly can. This is a touch that ultimately gives life. And as the woman leaves room for the man of God to do what only the man of God to do, lays out upon the boy, the boy's body grows warm, but it's not enough. So Elisha paces and prays. He's figuring out as he goes to in this weird and wild story. Then he does the same thing a second time. Seven sneezes and the boy is awake and handed back to his mother. This story, of a woman making room for God, leaving room for God, tending to the body of a dead loved one. Reminds me of another story of a couple women on a Sunday morning making their way to a room that had become a tomb to care for the body of their friend, to care for the body even of one of uh, their child. And it's in that place, in that space, in that moment, she leaves room for God. They leave room for God because in that space, the Spirit of God had quickened 
the body of that dead and lifeless Messiah. And he had come back to life and in his body is all of our bodies and the promise that we shall rise with him. And so for example, shows us what leaving room for God looks like. It encourages us that even as we're waiting in our miracle, pacing the floor of the waiting room, we can trust that God is doing something, that God hasn't left us on our own. We also have the promise of this, that ultimately, at the end of all things, we're encouraged to leave room even in the dust. We all make our way back to the dust, don't we? We don't know when that day is, but eventually we'll get there. And as you make your way to the dust, leave room there in the dust with you. Because eventually, one day, Jesus, that quickened Messiah, will walk right into that room, that dusty and dead room, and he'll place his eyes filled with mercy and grace upon our dead and lifeless eyes. And he'll place his mouth that's filled with the word of God of grace and truth upon our dead and lifeless mouths. And he'll place his nail-scarred hands, hands that performed the wonders of God and healed the world upon our dead and lifeless hands. And we'll hiccup and we'll shiver and we'll sneeze and we'll wake up together into our Father's house where we're told, promised even, that there are many rooms in that house. We find that the rooms that we've made for God have always been the rooms that he's made for us. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're in a space where you just need to give God an inch, not to get anything from him, not to force something from his hand, but just to say, I'm curious and I'm open. Come be with me and stay in my house. Or maybe you're in the place of having lost a dream, lost all that seems important to you, and you need to follow the Shunammite woman into a kind of severity and stubbornness and to say, God, you can't shake me. I got hold of you, and I'm not letting you go until I get a new name and a blessing. Or maybe you know that God's working, but you're in the waiting room, and you need the strength and the hope to trust that God is working even though we don't see it. Whatever the case, God is inviting you to make room for his spirit. Let's pray together. God, our lives are so cluttered. They're filled with activities and time. They're filled with relationships, commitments. We have so little room for you. God, grant us the strength, grant us the ability and the guidance to make room where room is needed. We pause now to create that space, not to tell you what to do with it, not to dictate the terms of that space, but to wait and to trust that as we wait in that space, perhaps it might take you a while to show up, not because you're cruel, but maybe you're waiting on old hopes to die so you can give us new ones. Whatever the case, we make room for you today. For my brothers and sisters who have lost something of their lives recently, living in brokenness, I ask now that you would grant them the courage to take hold, to be stubborn, to reflect your own steadfast love back to you. Let them take hold of you, and in so doing, may they discover that you've already taken hold of them. And God, we leave room for you to do what only you can do. And we wait for the small miracles and the big ones. We wait for you to wake us up. We wait for your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. 
We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.